It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. As well as doing responsible things like exercise and making podcasts, one of the things that's helped me through this period has been beer. And you could get eight free beers delivered direct to your doorstep. All you need to do is go to beer52.com slash party. That's beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash party. And cover just £5.95 for the postage. And you'll get eight globally sourced fresh craft beers delivered right to your doorstep. You don't even need to leave the house. Think of it as a kind of cabinet of eight great beers. Each month, Beer 52 send a case of craft beer from a different part of the world. Recent cases have included beer from the Alps, New Zealand, the USA, Ireland, Korea and Germany. So if you're looking to stock up or just fancy trying something different, Beer 52's Craft Beer Discovery Club is for you. And if you do change your mind, you can pause or cancel your account at any time you like. Every case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a tasty snack. Just go to beer52.com slash party and get your first case of eight beers for £5.95. That's beer52.com slash party. Hello and welcome to the Political Party. I hope you're well. Today's guest is Nick Timothy, Theresa May's former Joint Chief of Staff, and we talk about his time working for Theresa May, about what she was like, about the 2017 election, about the moment the exit poll comes out. In fact, we talk about that campaign and that night more than I thought we were going to. I wanted to talk to Nick about his book, um, Remaking One Nation, and his thoughts on liberalism and what the One Nation Tory approach should be. Uh, because he's got some really interesting ideas. So we do talk about that, but we also do talk about the campaign, 2017, working for Theresa May, working in Downing Street, the things he learned. This is absolutely sensational. Uh, Nick is an Aston Villa fan, and for those of you that follow football, you may have seen, although let's be honest, most of you won't care about this, even if you do follow football. But uh, Nottingham Forest until today had a wonderful footballer called Matty Cash playing for us, who I really liked, and he's just signed for Villa, who Nick supports. So uh, I began by asking Nick how it felt uh, to have signed the world's greatest footballer. Uh, (laughs) I confess I haven't actually watched him play, Um, uh, but the reports sound very positive. I mean, I think uh, we... Uh, we only escaped relegation by the skin of our teeth last season, and uh, I think everyone's hoping for quite a lot of like big name Premier League caliber and experienced players. Uh, but I'm not entirely certain that's uh, that's the transfer strategy. But uh, he looks like uh, potentially a, an England player of the future, so I'm quite excited about him. He he solves uh, perhaps. I mean, signing him suggests perhaps you may have a right-sided problem, and um, it's right-sided problems we're, we're probably going to talk about during this podcast because your show (laughs) it's a good job he signed for you because i wouldn't have had an introduction to the interview otherwise um your book remaking one nation uh kind of does what it says on the tin it's about 
redefining and, and rethinking about really what the Conservative Party is about and what the Conservative Party is for. Um, just before we get into the detail of the, of the book uh, and of your thinking, do you get the sense that the current government are in agreement broadly with, with what you think? Well, I mean, I think it's quite difficult to sort of judge governments sometimes because of the way they can get bogged down in the day-to-day -day of government. And, and certainly when you're facing, uh, you know, two simultaneous and related crises that weren't predicted, uh, you know, at the end of last year when Boris was elected, um, uh, it's quite difficult to, to judge their sort of sense of mission and their strategy um, outside that kind of day-to-day. Um, but yeah, I think they are trying to do um, some of what I've been arguing for a while. Um, and my view is, has been for some time that, um, that really uh, the country faces a set of problems and policy failures that actually have their roots in different strands of liberalism. So sort of economic liberalism on the right and more cultural liberalism on the left. And the Tory party needs to address that and change in a way that allows it to, uh, to offer a sort of program of kind of cultural conservative, conservatism and a bit of, I think, protection really for communities, uh, while at the same time moving away from some of their more ideological positions on, on the economy. And, and I think, you know, Boris was elected with a mandate to try to level up the country, to, to rebalance the economy regionally. He wants to do that by spending more money and if necessary, borrowing to do that. Um, and, and by being more interventionist in the economy. Uh, and uh, I think we're yet to see some of the details in the ways in which he'll be interventionist. But I certainly see some movement in, in the way we're talking about. COVID has kind of forced their hand to, to at least intervene, if, if nothing else, in terms of the furlough scheme and things like that. But how coherent and how coordinated do you think the current government's thinking is on things like, you know, they talk about levelling up and things like that, but do you think they have a co coherent philosophy and a coherent strategy for the country? Well, I think the political strategy has been quite coherent. Um, it's quite difficult, I think, to maintain, uh, like, you know, real sort of clear coherence in the story that you're telling on a day-to-day -day basis when your government is obviously making literally thousands of decisions in different ways every day. And... You know, you're obviously not in control of, of certain events, you know, like the British government could do very little about the fact that uh, um, this virus emerged from China. So, so government and the way governments communicate, I think, uh, um, you know, is at the mercy of, uh, of forces beyond its control. Um, you know, I think there is, there is a, as I said, there's a political strategy that's quite coherent. I think there is there is a sense of mission, which you know is about trying to uh, to level up the economy and to do more for the regions that have been uh, neglected a bit by uh, policy over the years. Uh, but we're yet to see all the ways in which the government intends to do that. Uh, so yes, we've got commitments on infrastructure spending and things like that. But you know, how else is the government planning to restore some of the lost social capital in these places? Uh, what are the more, uh, um, what are the other um, economic policies that amount to what, you know, what I would call industrial strategy that would contribute to that rebalancing? Uh, what is their attitude to intervening in markets that are failing or letting people down? 
Uh, we don't yet know those things, uh, partly because it's still early days in the life of the government, but partly because they're now confronting these, uh, these challenges that they, they hadn't predicted. But I think it's really important that um, as they try to work out uh, you know, how to lead the country to economic recovery, they actually put that rebalancing agenda at the heart of the plans for recovery. It's not something that can be done later and we just want to get the economy back to normal now. Um, actually, if we want the country to, uh, to be the strong economy that it is, uh, the resilient society uh, um, uh, you know, that, we, that we want it to be, um, and actually if we want the public finances to be sustainable in the long term, we need all of the country's engines firing, uh, and not just London and the South East. What sort of Tory do you think Boris Johnson is? Because some people say he's a liberal Tory. Some people would say he's a libertarian. Some people would say Dominic Cummings is a, limita- a libertarian and he's the most influential voice uh, in Boris Johnson's ear. I mean, you talk in your book about different types of liberals. How would you categorise Boris and Dominic? Uh, well, I mean, I think, I mean, Boris himself is a bit like uh, nailing jelly to a wall, I suppose. Um, and and I, do, <laughs> I do think it's probably quite difficult to become prime minister if um, if you actually have, if you're already um, sort of quite clearly pigeonholed, um, one of Boris's strengths, but also to be honest, I think the same is true of Theresa when she became prime minister. Um, and, and the same has been true of other people at different points in time. Uh, one, of the, one of the strengths of Boris is that different factions of the party think that he's really on their side. Uh, and you never quite know. <laughs> um, in the end, obviously, especially when you are prime minister, you have to you have to decide. You have to make choices, and uh, and and that will eventually um, sort of alienate different wings of the party and things like that. Because you know you have to make those decisions, and they won't like all of them. Um, but I think you know. I think once upon a time, I'd have said Boris is a fairly classic modern liberal conservative. Uh, socially liberal, um, economically liberal. Um, uh, but I think the interesting thing about Brexit um, is that uh, Brexit obviously clearly had to be delivered um, after the referendum. And it had to be delivered in a way that Brexit supporters truly reflected what they were voting for. And to do, and to do that would jeopardise some pre-existing Tory support, say more sort of prosperous, liberal, uh, you know, often Southern Conservatives were Remainers and were upset about the results and, uh, and the party faced losing them. And so to win the majority he needed to deliver Brexit, because it was a bit of a chicken and egg situation, um, uh, he actually um, had to, well, he had to build a new electoral coalition and the only electoral coalition that was consistent with being the party of Brexit and delivering a meaningful Brexit was to go for those um, traditionally Labour voting people who had, um, who, had, who had wanted Britain to leave the EU and were frustrated with Parliament and the Labour Party for stopping it. And to do that, uh, actually, he had to play up his kind of cultural conservatism and reassure them that he wasn't going to be some kind of neo-Thatcherite slash and burn pro-austerity anti-public services uh, conservative. You know, there aren't very many conservatives that actually match that caricature, but obviously that's the sort of attack that Labour would have made on him in those places. And so he he had to position himself as somebody who uh, was you know much more open to. Uh, the state intervening in the economy, 
um, and who was going to be robust on law and order and would bring immigration control as part of Brexit, uh, and so on. And now the Conservative Electoral Coalition, uh, I think, reflects the kind of issues that, uh, that, that I talk about in the book um, and, and will make the party, if it is interested in, if it genuinely wants to sustain this coalition of voters, it is going to have to move a little bit to the left on the economy and it will have to be reasonably robust on, uh, you know, on, on issues such as law and order and immigration. He was foreign secretary under Theresa May. Um, you must have seen him at fairly close quarters. Um, what was your assessment of him as a, as a member of Theresa May's cabinet? He, um, he was genuinely, I think, quite surprised when she offered him the position. Um, I was in the, one of the strange things about being chief of staff in Downing Street is you sit in on the meetings where the prime minister reshuffles and offers um, uh, the MPs their positions in the in the cabinet. Oh, and, God, I, was, one of the, I was presumed it was just the, the two of them in the room. No, so it's one of those rare occasions where there are no officials present at all. Um, and it's the two of them plus, uh, I think traditionally, the chief of staff. Um, and wow. And so I saw the look on, well, actually, they, it's quite an interesting experience because they all come in looking like um, uh, they're severely constipated. Uh, uh, because they're... <laughs> Some of them might be. <laughs> I'm sure they are. They all look in like horrific pain as they're sort of waiting to be told uh, uh, what job they're being offered. Uh, they have this look of absolute terror in their in their eyes, which actually seemed to take several seconds to disappear after yeah. being told that it was even if it was good news, um, because it's such a it's obviously you know, their whole careers um, are sort of presumably flashing before their eyes. Um, with Boris, I think he was genuinely very surprised that uh, that she made him the foreign secretary. Uh, they'd had quite a bumpy relationship when she was Home Secretary and he was the Mayor of London uh, over different aspects to do with policing uh, and crime and some of the disorder that had taken place in London. Um, and, and actually he, um, you know, he really wanted to make it work. I think he's, he, he obviously has this uh, characteristic where he's sort of, uh, you know, he's, he's, you know he's, he can be a bit of a lone wolf um, and, uh, and I think he tried very hard to be uh, a, a constructive member of the team, actually. Um, in, fact, in fact, if I had a criticism in the relationship, I think it was actually that, that he kept coming in uh, and saying, look, I, you know, I want to sort of, I want to, I want to rewrite the foreign policy. I want to devise a foreign policy and I want to really talk to you about it. And I, I, I actually think she never quite took him seriously or sort of trusted him enough. <laughs> Uh, having appointed him, uh, and and I think and the, and so the relationship, uh, I think if there was if there was a problem from those early days, probably probably stemmed from that, um, and then and then actually, but but really, I mean, I think the, the the difficult relationships Boris had in cabinet in that period were you know mainly with um, uh, Philip Hammond uh, uh, as Chancellor, who took a very different view of Brexit to him. Um, and, you know, used to spend cabinet meetings pulling funny faces as Boris was talking and that kind of thing. It was a little bit juvenile. So, you must have known Boris was going to be offered the, the role of Foreign Secretary. Whose idea was it? Oh, well, I mean, the cabinet was genuinely hers. I mean, there were obviously some discussions um, 
uh, with us and with other members of the team and with uh, with Jeremy Hayward, who was the cabinet secretary at the time and with uh, the chief whip. Um, uh, um, but I mean, like all the, I mean, obviously all of those decisions uh, were hers. She'd listen to advice and then she'd decide. So when she said to you, I'm thinking of making Boris foreign secretary, what did you say? Uh, I don't think I recall the conversation very clearly, but I mean, I, um, I was actually in favour of him being made foreign secretary. I mean, I remember, I remember talking about the logic of that reshuffle and, um, uh, and maybe maybe this was too glib and maybe it reflects a naivety about how much opposition to delivering Brexit there would be. But I remember I remember sort of summing up the conversation by saying, right, so it's Brexit abroad and social reform at home. Uh, because because the point was the leading Brexiteers from the referendum were put into the kind of foreign facing jobs so that so that there would be Brexiteers telling the story of Brexit. Uh, to the world, uh, so that so that you know the re- you know the real story of Brexit and the positive side of Brexit could be communicated. I'm not sure really that's exactly how it worked out, but that was the logic at the time. So when he starts talking about you know we've got to chuck checkers, you know all the work that went into getting that withdrawal agreement, all the painstaking work, not just of the Prime Minister and yourself, but so many people that worked on that across the civil service, and then he starts talking about chuck checkers. She must have been tempted to fire him. Well, so so actually, um, I wasn't there by that point. Uh, I'd had the sort of minor incident of the general election and my defenestration uh, uh, in that period. Um, I mean, I would, I, I think, um, uh, to go back to our football intro, uh, I mean, her premiership was very much a game of two halves, Gary. Um, uh, like, uh, on Brexit, um, in in the year up until the general election, she was... Uh, she was quite robust. Uh, I think the Brexit that she was talking about genuinely did reflect a real uh, sort of understanding that we needed to leave all the laws and the institutions of the European Union. And then we could negotiate a relationship that was close and, you know, economically productive and so on, but genuinely did understand that we needed to leave uh, in full and then, and then work out our relationship. And that was reflected in her main speeches, uh, which, I mean, I, I drafted a lot of that material, but um, that was reflected in those speeches, uh, I think it was a party conference to the uh, at Lancaster House and so on. And then after the election, um, uh, I think her Brexit strategy changed quite a lot. Um, I, think, I think they, you know, obviously she lost a lot of confidence, um, but also I think her advisors um, uh, and and Theresa concluded that uh, that without a clear majority the only way of uh, getting a deal that could pass the Commons would be by somehow getting Labour to support it um, and, and and I think ultimately her own personal lack of belief in Brexit she had been a Remainer uh, meant that uh, that she, um, she 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 that that belief I think then sort of came out a lot more and she was uh, she moved much more to a soft Brexit for sort of those tactical reasons but also probably her instincts led led that too and so and so by the time you got to Checkers um, I mean you know the 
I think the cabinet felt pretty badly about the way they'd been dragged to different positions before that point. And then Chequers itself, I think, was quite badly handled uh, in terms of the, the way personalities were treated. Um, but also, I think, you know, a, a large number of people in the room, um, a large number of those ministers thought that that proposition was all wrong. Uh, and so I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised that she lost David Davis and Boris over that because it was fundamentally uh, counter to what they believed Brexit should be. You've worked for Theresa May on and off in, in, in a number of roles over a number of years. How different was she, if at all, privately to the public Theresa May that we knew? Um, well, um, she, I think, she, I think, I think the truth is she's quite, she's quite a nervous interviewee, um, especially when she does broadcast. Um, and so I think she, she can come across as, um, yeah, I think probably being a weaker personality than she actually is. And she's got a, she's actually got a, uh, uh, stubborn uh, <laughs> and fairly sort of strong-minded person uh, when she wants to be. Um, uh, but I think that nervousness on television and that, that, you know, that weakness in her sort of, in, in her communication skills was probably, you know, it was, it was a significant factor in the, in the election campaign. And, and it's the kind of thing where, you know, you can get, go as far as Home Secretary with a fairly limited ability to communicate. And then, and then that's one of the big differences, I think, in being prime minister compared to you know, even really big senior cabinet ministers, because so much of the job is about talking to the country and telling them where you're trying to take them. Uh, and I think, I think she struggled with that. Um, uh, but I think that, you know, I think she, I mean, she obviously changed a lot over the years as well. I mean, I think she sort of grew a lot more uh, confident uh, through her tenure in the Home Office um, uh, and was probably a sort of a sort of stronger and more forceful personality in that period than she had been before. Um, but my feeling is, and I obviously wasn't there after the 17 election, my feeling is she sort of, she crumpled and she lost a lot of that sort of force um, after the disappointment of the, of the result. It's odd when politicians get more nervous the further they get uh, or the higher they get. And then people think of Gordon Brown as well. And obviously the office of prime minister, as you say, is so much more exposing than all the others. But she'd been on such a sort of strange trajectory because when she first came on the scene, she was kind of risque. You know, she told the Tory party it was the nasty party. She dressed in a more kind of expressive way than a lot of male or female politicians were. Then she's hard as nails at the home office. It was almost like a personality... She was always Theresa May, of course, but it seemed like she lost some of that almost bonhomie that she'd come into politics with. But I wonder if privately there was always a, that nervous element. Well, I mean, I said my sense of nervousness was actually just as, you know, she never liked being caught out on an interview and didn't. And I think always felt like she didn't want to let the team down. Yeah. Um, you know, it is a, it is a team sport. Um, and she, you know, she didn't want to get her policy lines wrong, um, and therefore I think came across as sort of Stilston wooden. Um, I think then as prime minister, I, was, I remember saying at one point, I said, you know, you don't need to be like that anymore. You know, you decide the rules. I mean, I, <laughs> I remember, uh, I remember being in the Home Office where David uh, Cameron, uh, because he is quite an easy communicator, he would sometimes say slightly the wrong thing because it just sort of came out because it was a 
like good line or, <laughs> or something. Yeah. Um, and you know, if like if a prime minister uh, took the policy into a slightly surprising direction, shall we say, you it was kind of your job in the department to then make it happen anyway, or to <laughs> or to or at least you know try to make sense of it. Uh, so to some extent, when you're the prime minister, you know you can you can say what you like. Uh, um, but she still never really wanted to do that. Um, so she was quite an uneasy. Uh, communicator in that sense and what we always tried to do in the home office and we did it in number 10 too was uh, we tried to build uh, sort of media strategies and political strategies that played to her strengths and minimized her weaknesses so you know we knew that uh, she wasn't that great on the sofa on you know on, uh, for a, a tv interview um, and so so you know we limited the number of those things and we made sure her communication was much more uh, you know, limited to things like serious speeches, uh, where you know we could actually be quite deep, um, and then and take questions and answers and that kind of thing, and be open. But it would, it, but it's a different style of communication which played to her strengths more, uh, and I think added to this sense of her being, um, you know, a fairly traditional uh, politician who wanted to sort of cut out some of the spin and the nonsense and that kind of thing. Uh, which actually is true. I mean, that is kind of how she thought about it. Um, but in the end, you kind of run out of road with a strategy like that because you can't run a general election in that sort of way because, you know, you've got to be a really easy communicator because there's, you know, there's a dozen journalists following you around on the, the very same bus with you uh, all day, every day. You've got a camera stuck in your face from every uh, moment you get off the bus or leave the office and, until you finally get to your home and get into bed again um so it's you know it's a really exposing environment and and i think i think that's where um some of that communication stuff really really came out you were her uh, chief of staff at at number 10 as we said Uh, well joint chief of staff with fiona hill so how how does it work splitting a role like that it's quite an unusual decision yeah, I can't, to be honest, with hindsight, it was the wrong decision. Um, I mean, we we uh, we, <laughs> um, we worked um, in, in the Home Office. We worked together in this way where we sort of, sort of said, you know, we're, normally special advisors say our policy is bad and and I'm the comms bad, and we said we're neither, and and neither are we going to say I'm in charge of immigration and and you're in charge of policing and crime. We were across everything. We would pick up sort of individual projects, but um, but we were across everything because you know fires break out in the Home Office all the time, and yeah. uh, and and you know one of you know you could be dealing with another crisis while another one blew up, or one of you could be on holiday or whatever. So like so we were always across everything, and I think we um, uh, we were really we worked really well together. It was total trust. Um, uh, uh, you know people knew that if they'd spoken to one of us, they'd effectively spoken to both of us and so on. Um, in Downing Street, there was still all the same trust and respect and everything, but uh, the, you know, the waterfront is so much wider. Uh, so it's much harder to do that. And, uh, and I think in, in reality, we should, have, we should have structured things a bit differently because I think, um, and it's kind of connected to the sense that we probably were a little bit too controlling uh, with the secretaries of state and the departments too. Because we brought, we brought a bit too much of the Home Office into Downing Street with us. You know, in the Home Office, you absolutely have to grip everything. Otherwise, the tiniest like, operational decision somewhere is going to blow you up. And in Downing Street, you just can't be like that because it's too much. And so, and so I think we were, 
we're, we were quite overwhelmed as a result. And, and in Danish, you can't, you know, in the Home Office, people knew that if I'd said something, fees, you know, feet all the same in Downing Street, that didn't, that didn't necessarily always happen because, uh, because we were just too busy. So we, were, we weren't able to communicate in the same kind of way. Um, and, uh, and I think we, you know, we, as a result of that, we, you know, we didn't manage our team very well. Uh, because we were kind of overwhelmed with our kind of advisory responsibilities, our personal responsibilities. We, we ended up not really being uh, uh, especially good managers. Um, and we should have been better at that. We should have, um, you know, yeah, I think we should, we, should, we should have been better at that side. Because chief of staff suggests a kind of managerial internal role, doesn't it? I mean, people know that they're giving political advice as well. But I wonder if a, a different job title would have been better or if you would have had a, a clear line where you're foreign and Fiona's domestic or policy and press or would that have made any difference? Well, I mean, I think we'd have done our jobs better. Um, uh, but I don't think, I mean, ultimately, I don't think it would have made that much difference to what happened. Uh, I mean, if you, if you actually look at the year in Downing Street, um, actually that year was, I mean, I'm critical of the things that we did because I'm always kind of self-critical, but um, uh, we, you know, we did we did some make make some mistakes, and I think the the relationship between down the street and the departments and our management style probably wasn't quite right. But um, if you actually look at that year, it was quite an orderly year of government. Um, uh, you know, you could disagree with what we did about Brexit and that kind of thing, but um, but actually it was it was actually quite a well run government. Our biggest screw ups are actually during the general election campaign, uh, which you know blew uh, you know blew things up quite significantly. But in the in in the year to the election, um, uh, you know, we were repositioning the party in government. It's always difficult to renew in government, and we, um, uh, you know, our political strategy, which was you know very deliberately about trying to make uh, the party more open-minded about um, about intervening in the economy, uh, about delivering Brexit. Uh, consciously sort of say, you know, saying that we're putting ourselves on the side of working class families, talking about class, which is a big thing for the Tory party to do, um, uh, talking about rebalancing the economy. Um, uh, all those things, um, which were part of the strategy we set, uh, led to this sort of incredible poll lead on the eve of the election campaign, where we were 20 odd points ahead, we were ahead in every region of the country. We were ahead with men and women. We were ahead on every age group, every social class, um, and and so and so the year. I mean, I am critical about some of the things we did in Downing Street, but um, but actually, uh, the Downing Street year, as a as a friend of mine always jokes, uh, should be the top of my memoir, the Downing Street year. Um, 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 uh, I think it was actually sort of it was reasonably orderly and and you know we didn't get everything right but it wasn't bad um, uh, the mistakes came in the campaign. So the campaign then and I feel bad asking you about this but I love talking about it so don't. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> so firstly, on the decision to call it, I mean it basically became irresistible, didn't it? I mean there was no world in which you couldn't have called it given the circumstances you faced. I I. I always thought we needed an early election. Um, I actually talked to Theresa about it during the leadership campaign right at the very beginning um, because the Brexit referendum just sliced straight through 
the coalitions represented by the two main parties uh, with their voters, yeah. uh, with their activists, but also their MPs. So, so yeah, you had some Labour MPs who said, we've got to respect the result. You had a lot of Labour MPs saying, over my dead body. Um, and you had a significant faction of of Tories who who hated it. And not, to be honest, they, you know, they didn't exactly come out and say it should be overturned. Um, but everything they were doing was playing a long game to try to do just that. And and it was clear to me that there was there wasn't there wasn't a majority for any kind of Brexit. Um, and so and so it always felt like there needed to be an election. Uh, and and we we had that conversation on and off from the leadership election onwards and Theresa was always reluctant to do it. And then, and then I remember the moment that I felt she changed her mind uh, was when, when she triggered article 50 and wrote the letter to, um, uh, to Donald Tusk. Um, she made a statement in the house and the mood was really weird. Um, and there was a lot of heckling uh, uh, and she came out uh, she used to read the mood of the house quite well. She came, she came out of the house and said, that was really weird. And, uh, you know, this is, this is, she obviously knew it was going to be easy. We'd already had things like the Supreme Court case and uh, on whether we needed legislation to trigger Article 50 and that kind of thing. Um, uh, it was obviously always going to be difficult, but I think that moment made her think, yeah, I, th- I think maybe I do need an election. So he decided to call the election. And obviously it's not just the context of the, of, of the Conservative Party. It's the fact that Labour have Jeremy Corbyn as a leader. His polling is appalling. Labour voters are saying they're not going to vote for this guy. At the start of the campaign, I mean, I, I think everyone, including Corbyn, just thought the whole thing was going to be a wipeout. So just as the campaign starts to change, at what point did you think you might be in danger? Well, I mean... <laughs> So I think the, oh, I mean, where do I start about this campaign? Uh, lots of things went wrong. Um, I mean, I think, I think the starting point for what went wrong was um, we basically ran two different and contradictory strategies at the same time, which is never really a good idea. Um, so so we, the Downing Street team basically, uh, you know, um, jointly led by me, uh, was kind of working on the basis of the political strategy that we'd set in Downing Street, the one I just described. Um, uh, the, the, the consultants who came in to run the campaign, uh, so um, Linton Crosby and Mark Texter and so on, um, took a much more kind of narrow and conventional view of campaigning and basically said, you know, and they're the, you know, the professional campaigners, um, you know, I'd been involved in campaigning for years, but I'd never run a national general election. Um, uh, and, and for that reason, we sort of, we wanted them in, uh, you know, we, uh, we, we stepped back a bit. So Fee took charge of communications, I took charge of policy, we weren't running the campaign. Um, and they came in and said, uh, you know, what you've been doing is very nice, um, but it's not going to work uh, in an election because, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're trying to sort of talk up the, you know, the Tories commitments to the NHS and, uh, and, you know, you're talking about, um, uh, you know, making sure the economy works in the interests of working class people. But these are, these are issues where if the, if their salience increases, they're associated with people voting Labour. So you don't want to talk about those issues. Um, you want to, you want to just 
repeat your message about why it's important that you're the government and just keep repeating it. Um, and so we had this, um, we had this contradiction from the beginning where, um, you know, Theresa wanted a, a mandate uh, to do the things she wanted to do. Um, uh, and so wanted a, you know, a policy rich manifesto um, and wanted uh, uh, to talk about those things. We originally envisaged a sort of really sort of traditional style uh, campaign, a bit like, as I was talking about with her, um, uh, style of communication where you might have like daily press conferences, you know, not always led by her, led by cabinet ministers, whatever, um, uh, instead of this kind of presidential style. And, you know, the consultant said, can't do that. Um, you know, the press, the press conferences will be uh, just a vehicle for the lobby to play games with us. And they'll just like have us on the run over silly things every day. And, and the ratings, the poll ratings of individual cabinet ministers are terrible. Um, and, the, and the party brand is still very weak. You know, she has this amazing poll rating. It's got to be Theresa May's Conservatives. It's got to be kind of presidential, which, um, which to be fair, she didn't want to do. Um, and they sort of, they talked her into it. Um, and then, so, so quite a lot's already going wrong, right? Uh, <laughs> um, and then... And then, you know, lots of other things went wrong. So, uh, so you know, like absolutely awfully, we had two terror attacks in the middle of the campaign, uh, which completely, um, uh, you know, sort of dominated the campaign for, you know, for, for quite a period, um, you know, understandably and rightly. Um, uh, there was a, people forget this, there was a big cyber attack on the NHS partway through the campaign, which also dominated the news for several days. Um, uh, you know, I don't think we really responded especially well to, to either of those things. Um, uh, the manifesto then went wrong um, uh, when uh, the social care policy uh, blew up. And, you know, and throughout, um, you know, Theresa was communicating quite poorly. She looked like she lost her confidence partway through. Um, and, and, you know, the whole electoral strategy, rather just like Boris's was in 2019, was to was to go and win the votes of, of traditional Labour voters uh, in the Midlands and the north of England and Wales um, who wanted Brexit to happen and thought Jeremy Corbyn was rubbish. Um, and and I, you know, I kept saying through the campaign, we're not doing anything to reassure the people we're targeting. Like, you know, we've, we, should be, we should be sort of showing them through uh, policy that, um, uh, that we actually share their values and that they can trust us. Um, and and we, never, we never did that. And in the end, you know, I think despite the fact that, that I think, you know, practically everything that could go wrong with the campaign did, um, it, we still got, I think it was like a net extra two and a half million voters and we got the highest share of the vote since 83. And, you know, if you'd said, if you'd said before the election, you get more than 43% of the vote, you'd have said, well, that's a landslide. Uh, but what happened was uh, Labour just built up this momentum at the same time and they somehow got to 40. So even though we did increase all of those uh, uh, the number of votes in our vote share, uh, we lost the majority. So, 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 you know, categorically it failed. But you did manage to target the people that you're talking about, those effectively Labour Brexiteers. You won Mansfield for the first time in its history. You, yeah. that, that, you did start the work that effectively the 2019 general election finished off. You, you did sort of... You got almost, not halfway there, but you, you made a you made a significant bite. You know that you started the movement into those areas. 
Yeah, um, I mean, we <laughs> a lot of those extra bits that we picked up, um, you know, took us from a you know a distant second and third in lots of places to a fairly close second, and so you know, it just and it required a sort of second leap in the twenty nineteen election to do it. And I think you know, and they, I don't want to say that the sort of the twenty twenty nineteen election was uh, sort of just like seventeen because you know they obviously they were they were pursuing a similar strategy, but they. Um, you know, frankly executed it just a lot better. So they, you know, they didn't make the same mistakes. They had one clear strategy, one clear message. Boris is a better communicator. The manifesto was safety first, understandably so. Um, and, and also the context had changed. So, uh, you know, we knew in 17 that Parliament wasn't really going to pass any particular form of Brexit. But by 2019, it was written in lights that Parliament was messing around with Brexit. Um, and, 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 you know, it was pretty clear to a lot of voters that actually Labour were the biggest culprits in that respect. Um, so, you know, so in 17, Labour got away with facing in both directions, really, on Brexit. Um, in 19, they were really exposed because they were, they were messing around and, uh, and, and trying to stop it. Um, and also, Corbyn had changed a lot in the public mind. So I think in 17, uh, um, you know, a certain number of voters um, did actually think, oh, this is interesting, he's offering something different. In 19, in the intervening period, there'd been things like the Salisbury poisonings, uh, the use of chemical weapons in Syria. On both occasions, he basically stood up and took the side of Britain's enemies. And all the stuff that had previously been said about Corbyn, about the IRA and about Hezbollah and Hamas and all these things that, you know, lots of voters might have thought, yeah, but that was a long time ago. And, you know, we did end up talking to the IRA and we did do a deal and so on. Um, all those things that could be said about him then were suddenly contemporary and relevant because they, you know, they saw in real time that he was basically on the Kremlin's side and not the government's, and not just the government's, but you know, like you know, our, our intelligence agencies. <laughs> so, um, so, so that was also quite a big difference. Saving money on exterior wall lights now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. It must have been quite surreal, particularly as the polls started to narrow in that final stretch of the campaign to sort of not be able to knock him out in a way, not, you know, in, in sporting terms, you know, that, that, he, yeah. that he'd seen such an easy opponent and then actually became this kind of tricky guy that was actually quite hard to campaign against. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, it felt like an unconventional campaign from the beginning. I mean, normally in, a, in an election campaign, you know, if, if, you know, if Labour are proposing a new policy, you, you know, you produce a rebuttal document within like minutes and you sort of, you know, you get your spokesman on telly saying there's a black hole at the heart of their spending plans. <laughs> and and we, we tried to do that with some of Labour's spending plans. And to be honest, because nobody took them seriously, um, the broadcasters weren't very interested in taking the rebuttals. Um, but so they, they were getting these quite, um, they were getting coverage uh, for these announcements, but there's somehow the detail uh, and the, and, and the, the detail in rebuttals wasn't really coming 
across. And I think that's another failure of our campaign. So I remember in central office, people were sitting around going, the bloody BBC and that journalist's biased and all the rest. And I, and, and, you know, I, I remember saying and certainly thinking quite a lot, well, the trouble is it's not that, it's not that there's bias, it's that, it's that Labour were putting forward stories that work on broadcast. They were putting forward policy proposals that could be debated and talked about. And, and we weren't. We were repeating the same message at a very similar looking rally every day. Uh, and you don't get good broadcast coverage by doing that kind of thing. Do you think Theresa May should have done a TV debate with Jeremy Corbyn? Would that have helped or would it have made no difference or been negative? I just think that was probably like, you know, if, the, if the rest of the campaign had gone better than it had, that probably wouldn't have been a factor. Um, uh, but because everything else was going wrong, that kind of contributed to the sense that actually, you know, she, to borrow the phrase, she wasn't as strong and stable as she was saying she was. So, and you talk about this in the book, but the moment the exit poll comes through, and I mean, anyone, it doesn't even matter what side you're on, or even if you're not that interested in politics, one of the most surprising exit polls, certainly the most surprising exit poll of my life, when, <laughs> didn't matter what you want from, from that result, it was a shock, either a nice one or, or whatever. When you first saw it, did you believe it? Yeah, um, I mean, I literally just had a shiver up my spine just thinking about it. Oh, I'm um, so sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, well, um, we actually got, we got a tip off about what, uh, it, it was revealed at 10 o'clock to the country and we got a tip off at about one minute to 10 and he mm. told me what it was. And like, I mean, uh, to put things into perspective, um, you know, with hindsight, it, you, you would, you would think that it was like obvious in a way that it was going to happen or something. But I mean, like, I think, I think the last analysis of seats I saw produced by the team in central office said we we're on, on course for a very significant majority. I actually forget the number. I think it was at 60 odd. Um, and, you know, I was getting messages from the campaign team during the day going, you know, Bolsover's looking good, Sedgefield's looking good, all these like places that felt unbelievable that we might win. And in fact, we did win in 2019. Um, but we, you know, we didn't, uh, on the day. Um, uh, so, so even though we, like, we knew the campaign had gone badly, um, but, but I think, you know, people were still expecting, uh, you know, a pretty comfortable majority. Uh, and when the exit poll came through, uh, you know, like it just felt like everything stopped. And what, what was worse was Fiat and I were in this sort of like glass walled office with like, you know, hundreds of staffers and volunteers outside. Um, so we went through to this sort of back room where the, uh, where the sort of statos were, um, sort of, you know, doing their analytics, uh, and where the campaign consultants were. Um, and, and I remember Linton sort of going that, you know, it's wrong, it's bullshit, it's wrong. Um, and, and, St and Stephen Gilbert, Lord Gilbert, uh, who was another one of the consultants just took me to one side and went, look, exit polls are never wrong. Uh, this is it. And, and then the first results started coming through in Sunderland and places like that. And they did show massive swings towards us. And, 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 and so, so I remember Linton going, you see, it's wrong. And the data people were putting the numbers in to see what it meant for their projections. And they were saying, yeah, it does look like uh, it's wrong. Uh, but obviously it wasn't. And I think one of the reasons we didn't know, it's one of these things about modern campaigning. It's sort of parties actually don't have like huge resources to throw at the electorate. So they target quite narrow numbers of seats. Yes. 
and and you know you might have a good picture of what's going on in those seats but actually if there's a kind of if there's a big shift elsewhere it's actually quite difficult for you to pick up uh, and i think that's one of the things that happened so <laughs> linton crosby's there saying it's bullshit it obviously then as the night unfolds he starts to starts to realize it's not bullshit and then inevitably when things haven't gone the way you would have hoped people start getting blamed or whatever just before we come to that when you talk to Theresa may on the phone you say that she, she was basically sobbing i mean it must be quite a hard thing for you to have to deal with yeah <laughs> uh i mean well i spoke on the phone after the exit poll um uh and i think i mean i i i think I just said, I think I might have said Linton says it's wrong, but I, I, I just said, like, we're just going to have to wait and see. And, uh, and, and Fee went out to the constituencies to see her. So, um, uh, so, so I'm afraid she took the burden of, of the sort of like the, you know, the personal uh, side of things at that moment. Uh, I mean, to be honest, I was just in shell shock. For the evening. I mean, it was like very, it's very difficult to convey the sense of, uh, uh, despondency, I suppose. Uh, I mean, one of the one of the senior staffers in in central office, who's a, who's a mate of mine, um, collapsed and was taken away in a hospital. I mean, oh, I, I mean, I saw him on the floor. I've never seen anybody look like that. He was he was he was such a deathly white. I, I thought I, I thought he was going to die. Oh, um, it was it was it was a very difficult night. Yeah. He was fine, um, but but he had to go to hospital. I, mean, it's, uh, I don't yeah. think people have any idea the toll that working in politics takes on people. It is so intense. And, and that, that thing that you describe of Theresa May's nerves being a product of a desire to not let the team down, I think anyone who's worked in politics can really identify with that, whether they've been a politician, advisor, or staffer, or whatever. The huge collective effort and the emotional strain it takes on you. The, by the time that the exit poll comes around, you're just knackered. You're completely knackered. I mean, it, I'm surprised more party staff don't collapse, actually. It's a, it's a, it's a medical miracle that, that it doesn't happen. Well, I'll be interested to see what our life expectancy is. <laughs> well, we're out <laughs> of it now, so if, <laughs> your life expectancy is even, even, well, even when it goes well, you t- it takes a toll. I, I genuinely lost all my hair in that office. Oh, my God. And do you think it was related to that or not? Uh, well, my mother certainly thinks so. She <laughs> blames it very bitterly. Uh, but I mean, it, it is it is when it all fell out. So then, just to wrap up on the twenty, I don't want to dwell on the twenty seventeen election, but um, you then uh, effectively are relieved of your duties. Um, I mean, did, it felt like you and Fiona basically got blamed for it all. Did, uh, was that how it felt? Uh, and is that fair? Uh, it is how it felt. Um, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I mean, I, I knew during the campaign that there were there were certain briefings to the media um, uh, that uh, that I think were an insurance policy for some people, shall we say, to, um, that if things didn't go well, uh, the blame would be uh, put in our direction. Uh, you know, I'm completely open about the fact that, uh, you know, the manifesto went wrong and I was responsible for the manifesto I co-wrote it. Um, and, and, you know, I had to take responsibility for that reason. Uh, but, uh, but I think, you know, it's pretty much an ingrained part of the narrative now that, uh, that, that like, you know, we ran the campaign, which we didn't, um, that, uh, that, uh, you know, a large number of the things that went wrong with it, with the campaign that 
you know, we weren't responsible for, we apparently were. Um, uh, and so, you know, I'll, I'm very happy to take responsibility for the, uh, for the things that I was responsible for. Um, uh, and, and, you know, somebody needed to, somebody needed to say, okay, I'm, I, I'm leaving the stage now. And, and, you know, I, I took the decision to do that that evening. Um, uh, but, you know, some of the things that were then, you know, written and said, you know, large, large parts of which just weren't true, um, uh, pretty, pretty personal and, uh, you know, it's very difficult. I mean, I, I, you know, I had like random strangers that acquired my mobile number and were sending me abuse and, what? uh, oh yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and, you know, like, like day after day after day of people sort of saying things that aren't true about you in the media, it takes its toll. And I, uh, yeah, I didn't have a breakdown. I was sort of, but, but I was, I was mentally in a, in a terrible state that summer. Terrible state. I'm not surprised. It's always, people love a story about, uh, you know, the, the people in the shadows, whether it was Mandelson for a while or Campbell and, and now it's Dominic Cummings. And, and for a period of time, it was you and Fiona Hill and people project all sorts of uh, ill intent onto, onto individuals like yourself and, and presume that you were the source of all the problems of the government and somehow you've got some kind of dark wishes for the, for the world. I mean, this is the way people talk about Dominic Cummings now. I mean, in a way, you must be relieved that Dominic Cummings showed up and ended up getting into number two. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, I think, yeah, I think if there's a, um, I suppose if I wanted a sort of uh, larger than life and sort of unfairly caricatured successor to make me look a bit better in those respects, I probably couldn't have expected any better. Um, I think it's unlike, I mean, you know, the, the way Dom's family have been brought into some of the things that have happened with him, it's completely unacceptable. Um, and he's, yeah, I, he's, he's a, he's a big lad and uh and he's like you know he seems to just want to take it on the chin because you know to some extent he does court some of these things um uh but i think i think it's wrong i think the, the way we the way we talk about our politics and the way we debate it it's you know it's it's not serious um you know if you you don't get this kind, you don't get this kind of thing in a country like germany their government's serious you know they've got <laughs> they've i think Maybe it reflects the fact that actually our our government is amateurish in different ways, and maybe it's that um, Westminster and Whitehall is too much of a pantomime, and and too much attention is placed on it because everything is over centralised. I don't know, but you don't you know you don't get a lot of this nonsense in other European countries. Do you ever speak to Dominic Cummings? Uh, I haven't spoken to him for quite a, quite a while. Um, um, we shared, we've shared texts a few times uh, since he took the job, but not, not too many. Um, but I've known Dom for quite a long time, and I've got a lot of respect for him. Because it's so few people, it's almost like ex-Prime Minister, so many few people alive have done the sorts of jobs that you've done in this country. So you almost feel like there should be a kind of ex-chief of staff's whatsapp group or something where we can kind of help each other out you know which would be undoubtedly on some level help the country yeah i think the, the thing about the thing about that job but also actually to be honest the thing about being a special advisor almost in any context is is the job is never the same yeah uh, the the job changes according to 
you know, the personality of the person filling it, uh, the expectations of their boss, uh, you know, the, the other staffers they work with, uh, the political context. Uh, I mean, I'm, uh, no, I was about, <laughs> I've met Jonathan Powell and had a chat to him about, about some of this stuff. I was about to tell a story that he told me and then realized that it was, prob <laughs> it was probably private. So I got, I'm sure he um, wouldn't mind. Um, uh, I'm sure he would. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try and get him on. He's very discreet. <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, you actually, you do, um, uh, you do meet um, people across the party divide uh, um, and you can share stories and, uh, you know, maybe learn from some of the, their experiences. Um, uh, but there's, n there's nothing so formal as a, uh, a national association of chiefs of staff trade union. <laughs> you mentioned actually, you know, politics in Germany being so much more serious than it is here and, and the issues with our uh, politics here. And you, you talk about this in the book about a political and a cultural crisis. Um, what do you think has caused that crisis? Well, I mean, what I argue in the book is, uh, is because what I try to do is that instead of just sort of analysing the policies and the, um, uh, and, and the policy consequences, um, uh, I try to step, step back quite a bit because I don't, you know, very, nobody in government ever has the opportunity to do this because they're always like fighting what's in front of them. Um, and so, and so I, I try to trace it back to sort of actually philosophical thought. Um, and, and, and what I, what I say is this is the, you know, the political crisis, uh, is being fueled by a double crisis. One is an economic one. Uh, the other one is a kind of cultural one. Uh, and the problems we have are related in, in flaws in, uh, in philosophical liberalism and mutations of philosophical liberalism into slightly strange uh, kind of ultra forms that exist today on left, right and centre. And uh, I'm not saying, uh, don't worry, we don't need to do a sort of um, <laughs> deep philosophical chat now, but um, uh, I'm not arguing that every MP and minister is sort of thinking about, you know, Locke or Rawls or Hayek or whoever. Um, uh, but I think, I think those ideas uh, have actually informed a lot of the sort of, uh, um, you know, the contemporary thinking that influences what the different parties do today, whether those MPs know it or not. Uh, and I think, I think it is an opportunity to actually, if you go back into those ideas and identify what some of those mistakes are uh, and some of those distortions are, then we might be able to understand um, actually how to do policy differently now, um, and so and so all the all the analysis in the book and all the recommendations in the book stem from that kind of uh, philosophical analysis as well as kind of empirical research and that kind of thing. What are those main mistakes? I think I've just told your listeners to not buy the books. It sounds incredible. <laughs> no, it sounds brilliant, <laughs> and I'm sure listeners of this if if, the, if listeners of this show aren't the target audience, then. Uh, then I don't know who he is, who is, because uh, I, th I think people would really want to, you know, people are really interested in this stuff. So, uh, you know, you think about those philosophical groundings, those 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 liberal thinkers that you describe, economic and social. What are the the distortions then of, of that thinking? Well, so I think so. So, I mean, it depends on which particular thing you're uh, you're talking about. But um, uh, you know, to give an example. Um, uh, 
one of the one of the, one of the flaws in in liberalism itself, I think, is um, is there's a sort of split uh, in liberal thinking where sort of one strand says pluralism is a good thing uh, because um, you know values and interests uh, are, are incessantly clashing, uh, and we need to accept a kind of modus vivendi where uh, um, where we accept and tolerate difference because otherwise, uh, we, you know, that leads to intolerance and, and, you know, worse violence. There's another strand of liberalism that basically says pluralism is a good thing because um, pluralism is the means by which through effectively a process of trial and error and our own sort of rationality as individuals, we actually get a more increasingly perfect society uh, so it sort of bakes this sort of sense of inevitable progress uh, into its thought. And the danger with that um, is, is progress is kind of in the view of the beholder. And, and if you, you know, if one person says, or if a majority says, uh, progress is this, if you disagree with that, um, then you are almost by definition uh, illogical, stupid, dumb, uh, or maybe nefarious, um, and so and so, it's only a short leap from there that the people who believe in that progress should become intolerant and illiberal towards the people who disagree with them. And so you can see the way that pans out now in, say, you know, the argument about trans rights, for example, where you know some people are saying, "Well, hang on a second, uh, the rights you're talking about granting may interfere with the rights of women's, you know, women to have." privacy and security, for example. Uh, and, you know, some of those people are, are treated as though they're sort of like disgusting bigots uh, and that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, it just as much applies to, um, you know, things like the invasion of Iraq. So you think about the speed with which Iraq was invaded to deliver ridiculously liberal democracy um, uh, because democracy was what would bring peace. Um, you think about how quickly the Americans started to justify the use of torture in the name of <laughs> giving liberal democracy to Iraqis. Um, it's, you know, the people who were sort of uh, standing against them were somehow sort of, uh, you know, not on the side of progress. Uh, so I think that's, you know, that's one of the examples of, of what you find when you look into the, um, uh, some of the philosophical assumptions of, you know, and, I was about to call liberalism an ideology. It is an ideology, but we tend not to think of it in that way uh, because it's kind of prevailing. So much of this is relevant. I mean, Brexit is, is one small strand, really, compared to, you know, such a broad discussion as this. But this feels particularly relevant now, and people complain that we're living in a culture war. And maybe it's just that perhaps for quite some time, people haven't really thought about what their own politics is and what they really believe and what the best way to achieve that is. I mean, there's, there's something you talk about in the book about um, taking the sense of community and nation for granted, and that feels particularly relevant now, whether it's discussions about land of hope and glory and uh, uh, rule Britannia at the, uh, at the proms or whether that was ever going to be played or not played. I haven't fully kept up with the story. But there is a sense of, um, I think, on left, right and centre, that perhaps, particularly in Britain, there isn't a coherent sense of what Britain is. Yeah, I think, I mean, to sort of 
to I'll use this as another example of one of the things I do in the book, but the, um, to me, this is about uh, the kind of false universalism that exists in liberalism. So you, you know, some of the earliest uh, liberal thinkers uh, devise their philosophies by sort of imagining a state of nature where there was no government uh, at all, uh, which is, you know, awful, violent, life is short, poor, etc. And so they, invis- so they worked out what the uh, sort of social contract would be um, uh, um, to, to form a government. And the liberals then differ about what that social contract should be. But, uh, but basically, you know, guarantees, uh, you know, the right to, um, uh, to safety and property rights and things like that. Um, the, problem, the problem with the state of nature theorists is, uh, is that obviously it was never real. Um, and there was never a year zero. And every community and every member of a community is born with, uh, with rights and obligations that they've inherited from the previous generation. And, uh, and they, they inherit a kind of cultural context with institutions that guarantee those rights and enforce those obligations. Uh, and traditions uh, that are sort of specific to the place that help you to recognise uh, you know, a fellow citizen and you, you recognise familiarity in one another and therefore you know whether, uh, you know, uh, it's safe to engage with them or, uh, or, or you, or you recognise that you might do something for a fellow citizen that you might not for a, a non-citizen. And because liberalism doesn't, um, uh, well, lots of liberal thinkers don't recognise that because it can't, because the theory sort of starts with this state of nature um, it assumes that basically we're the same the world over and we're all sort of individuals, freedom maximizers, highly rational and so on. Um, and so it doesn't really, I think, I don't think it respects enough uh, the kind of cultural and institutional traditions that we, um, that we, that we live in. Uh, and in fact, sometimes it actually goes out of its way to attack them uh, because it sees those institutions and those traditions as ways of restricting our individual freedom uh, because they do because they moderate our behavior they tell us you know not to drop litter on the street or whatever um uh, and so and so liberalism can be very um uh i think naive about the importance of place uh in people's lives it, you know it can treat countries pretty much like a platform uh where you know we're just a, a a slightly different kind of market economy to another one, and that's it. Uh, <laughs> and 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 I think one of the problems with that is, you know, and clearly people value their cultural identity and they value institutions. And and I think we also understand, as you know, I think I think humans understand that our behaviour has to be moderated in different ways. Um, and and the institutions and the traditions that moderate our behaviour have have. Um, have declined, in, often thanks to liberal policies. Um, and I think, I think you know, whether, whether it's Brexit itself or whether it is about these arguments about culture, um, actually people want, people value their kind of, uh, their local community, but also their national identities. And they want the, uh, I think they want the sense of solidarity that, that those identities stand for. And without that solidarity, you can't have all the nice things that liberals uh, often say they want, like, you know, redistributive taxation or universal public services, because there's less trust.
globalization runs through so much of this stuff about national identity, about uh, capitalism and how it works and who it works best for. And even in terms of the spread of a, of a coronavirus, do you think the world would be a better place if globalization not happened? Well, I, I, <laughs> how do you answer that? I mean, it's naive, it's naive to think that, uh, that you know, globalization could be you know, just reversed or turned off or something. Um, it, as soon as as soon as we have technologies that make you know mass transport possible or sort of you know live communication across the world um, possible, then then you have globalization. Uh, the model of globalization and the nature of globalization is then obviously influenced by policy decisions and international treaties and frameworks and. Um, you know, tariffs and, and actually sometimes quite mundane things like the standardization of containers. Uh, there's quite interesting studies which show that the volume of international trade increased quite significantly in the, 20, in the sort of uh, second half of the 20th century, but more because uh, the containers that go on the back of lorries and onto ships were standardized around the world um, rather than sort of reductions in tariffs. Um, obviously both contributed, but the first more than the second. Um, so, you know, I remember Tony Blair saying, you know, you might as well uh, deny that autumn follows summer as deny globalization. And of course, that like, is right to a point. Um, but actually, of course, like the nature of globalization and the way trade works um, and the way international governance works is a matter of uh, or should be a matter of democratic political debate. Um, and I think we're, I, th I think the fact that that hasn't been debated and the fact that a lot of people have, in the West have started to lose out from the way international trade uh, works uh, is one of the sort of drivers behind the crisis we're facing. Um, because if you, know, if you look at the studies, um, uh, in terms of whose incomes have increased over the last uh, few decades, then uh, then actually uh, the world's poorest have um, have have got better off. Um, uh, I mean, the real poorest, um, the the sort of more working class um, uh, people in in the developing world have also got better off. The super rich, the you know the sort of top one percent or so. Uh, uh, are enormously better off, um, but actually, there's a there's a section where incomes have dropped um, uh, quite harshly, and they are the Western working class, um, and it's it, it is because of the way in which production networks have changed. So the sort of skilled manufacturing jobs uh, that would have existed a generation or so ago um, are no longer done in Western countries. Uh, and so we're starting to see this kind of polarization in our labor markets where, uh, um, you know, rather than having a sort of healthy middle, you have, you have a section of society that's doing very well. Um, and then a lot of people who are doing low skilled and low paid and insecure work and fewer people in the middle. Um, and that's a problem, but it's also, uh, it's a problem in its own right, but it's also a problem in the sense that it is driving some of this uh, um, political instability in the West. It's one of the reasons why, you know, it's not just happening in one country, it's happening all around the West. And what is the answer to that? Because, you know, Jeremy Corbyn and, and perhaps even Keir Starmer might say, 
Well, the answer to that is to start manufacturing more at home. Would that be the one nation conservative answer? Well, I think, well, I think the, it's not quite as simple as saying, um, can we just suddenly start manufacturing more at home? Not least because, you know, modern manufacturing methods uh, mean that, um, that even if more of it was done here, it wouldn't necessarily mean that uh, we'd have manufacturing employment in the numbers that we have had in the past. However, I do think making sure that we have a more balanced economy, and I don't just mean regionally, I mean in sectoral terms as well, is, um, is, part, of, is part of the solution here. Um, uh, and, and actually, there are, you know, there are many other advantages to that too. I mean, I think one of the things that we've learned from the virus is, uh, is that we, you know, we, transnational production networks probably need to become a bit more regional and less global anyway. Um, but also, um, you know, countries probably need to do certain things and have certain production capabilities of their own. Um, and, in, you know, it's not a coincidence that uh, the two of the countries that have handled the pandemic the best, Germany and South Korea, are manufacturing countries with, uh, with significant production capabilities. Um, so it's not, a, you know, it's not a case of arguing you know, stop globalization, stop the world, I want to get off. Um, uh, I think there's an argument for saying uh, the way the West and the way Britain within the West um, looks at the way in which uh, the rules work for international trade and the way the governance works uh, might need to change. But there's also a lot that we need to do at home in terms of making sure that our economy is properly uh, um, diverse, that it, uh, that it, you know, it serves more people than it does at the moment. Um, people of different skills and education levels, but also different geographical places. Uh, Nick, this has been a, a fantastic chat. I've kept you for longer than I said I would. I've got um, a curry to go and cook now, so. Oh, excellent. What sort of, I, I cooked a curry yesterday that I'm about to have. So what sort are you having? I'm making a, a, a buttered chicken, which is probably not that healthy. How about you? Um, I made a halloumi madras. Oh, Wow. Yeah, I'll, well, um, it's a sort of it's a recipe I made myself. No, but my girlfriend is, so that means oh, that okay. I, I effectively have. Yeah, that, that, that must be difficult. <laughs> yeah, but I'll, I'll send you the recipe if you like. Yeah, do I, I like cooking curries? Yeah, uh, I, it's practically the only thing I can cook with any kind of confidence because uh, it's basically cheating. It's not that difficult. <laughs> no, it's not very easy. Uh, Nick, thank you so much. Well, there you go, Nick Timothy. Two separate conversations, really. I really wanted to talk to him more about both those things, about the ideas in his book, um, because he's clearly thought about this stuff really deeply um, and what it would mean in practice in terms of policy and where we go as a country and um, sort of new political divides it might define, but also voyeuristically. You just want to hear every detail about that 2017 campaign, about behind closed doors about that evening as, as difficult as it was um, perhaps for him to talk about um, but that was great it just had everything uh, you know some real deep thinking and that peek behind the curtain 
uh, that always goes down so well. So I've put a link uh, to Nick's book uh, in the in the blurb, in the show notes. There is, of course, a link to my book as well, Politically Homeless, which is available in hardback that you can pre-order. It's out on the 8th of October. Uh, there is an audio book version as well that's been recorded. So if you prefer to listen to things, and if you listen to this podcast, you may well fall into that demographic. Maybe you want both. Maybe you're a completist and will buy the paperback when it comes out next year. Good on you. Um, but I'll also, of course, have to put a link to that. Um, you can pre-order signed copies through Blackwell's um, as well, so of my book. Uh, and I'm sure there are signed copies of Nick's book. If not, buy an unsigned copy and wait until the chance you get to meet him uh, and, and get it signed. Do email the show as well, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Um, any feedback, always welcome. Guest suggestions, always welcome. And it is just nice to know where you listen. And I, I know, and I've said this before, this kind of favours exotic locations. But I am genuinely interested if you listen, you know, on, on the bus on the way to work. Um, James Mant is listening from Australia. Hello there in Australia, James. Uh, and his suggestion for the show is Tony Abbott. Well, Tony may be uh, a lot closer geographically to me than to you, James. So who knows? Uh, I may uh, I may be able to snare him and get him on the show. But uh, I hope you will. This is obviously a strange time where, at the start of the lockdown, it was a, a very intense experience, uh, particularly for people like me that were shielding. And, and I know a lot of people had it a lot worse. Um, but obviously we're now in a period where um, people are starting to move around a bit. So I hope you're not finding it too anxious, whatever situation you find yourself in. Uh, and I hope you feel comfortable um, that you're not, you know, having to venture out if you don't or that you, you feel safe. Um, because, it, you know, it's still... There's certain things where you think, oh, well, okay, some things are back to normal. But it's obvious that the world is not, of course, back to normal yet. So um, even though a lot of the messages are about perhaps correctly how some people could go back to work and all the rest of it um i just hope you're okay and that uh, whatever situation you find yourself in uh, you're coping well so um thanks again for downloading this uh, and as always if you can summon the generosity within to leave a glowing itunes review uh, i would be very very grateful i'll be back next week i'll see you then for now ta-ra When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.